0: Ozone is an invisible upper atmospheric gas that protects all forms of life on Earth from most of the sun's damaging radiation. Radiation that can cause skin cancer, eye damage, and suppression of the immune system. The harvesting of fish and plant life are also affected. A vast amount of aquatic life has its beginnings in the oceans near Antarctica. False color imagery of the South Pole from NASA's Nimbus 7 satellite provides scientists with a roadmap of daily changes in the ozone. By tracking this imagery for the past nine years, they have discovered a trend. Each spring over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops, and it has been getting larger year by year. To date, as much as 50 to 60 percent of the ozone in this area has been lost. These discoveries prompted a coordinated series of Antarctic ozone experiments. Scientists used ground-based instruments and launched balloon-borne payloads to sample air chemistry at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. At the same time, NASA's DC-8 Flying Laboratory studied the lower atmosphere making long missions from Punta Arenas, Chile, into the area of ozone depletion. NASA's high-flying ER-2 plane, carrying a single pilot and a handful of sampling instruments, flew directly into a layer of atmosphere where the ozone was depleted. A number of activities contributing to ozone loss have been pinpointed by the scientific and policy community. No longer do canned aerosol products contain chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, but these harmful gases still get into the atmosphere because they are used as refrigerants, fire retardants, foam-blowing agents, and solvents. As long as this persists, ozone will continue to be lost. This is ozone. In the
1: decade before the discovery in Antarctica, many scientists and politicians tried to explain the ozone loss theory to the public, But it was a challenge to show what was really happening in the atmosphere. For many, ozone loss was just a theory. Invisible gases in the Earth's invisible atmosphere. That was about to change. Mario Molina remembers when NASA's plane took off to measure the ozone over Antarctica to confirm the existence of ozone loss. Yeah, because we were, of course, fascinated at expecting this. they were flying from Southern Chile, from Punta Arenas, taking off all
2: the way to uh, uh, Antarctica. I said, God, will we hear anything else from the
1: pilots? But they were able to return. The first two flights, the instruments didn't work, but then, uh, then the results came. In. So that's the smoking gun, mm-hmm. and so that's a sort of thing. I mean, of course there you know, was a hole in the sky. It was no longer just a theory. Graphics produced by NASA were vivid and clear. Within days, the images were seen in every corner of the planet. The evidence was finally there. The industry, which had for years been asking for data that would confirm the theory, finally had the data. And it was inescapable. After a decade-long discussion, the time for action had finally arrived.
2: It was a very rapid transition. And I think, in part, it was... The, the graphics that could go with it. Um, NASA very quickly put out pictures showing the ozone hole, and it was blindingly obvious to anybody that you, you could see right there's, there's a difference that the, the ozone has gone over Antarctica. The other aspect was that decrease in ozone links into an increase in ultraviolet light reaching the surface which increases the likelihood of getting skin cancer. So as soon as you mention cancer as an issue, then that reaches the public awareness as well. And there is greater pressure on the politicians to do something about it.
1: That was Jonathan Shanklin, one of the British scientists who first discovered the ozone hole. Towards the end of the summer of 1987, representatives of nations from all over the world met up to discuss the ozone crisis in Montreal, Canada. The first issue to be resolved was how to achieve an agreement between developed nations and developing countries on the limitations of CFC use. During the negotiations, even CFC companies in some countries, facing national regulation and fearing an unequal playing field, started calling for an international agreement that would regulate CFC emissions. On September 16, 1987, 24 countries and the European community, which is today the European Union, signed the Montreal Protocol, an international agreement with the singular goal of protecting the ozone layer. The protocol would go on to become the first universally ratified treaty in United Nations history. Under the agreement, participating countries were supposed to freeze and then reduce their emissions of ozone depleting substances.
0: If that was
2: all we had ever done, we would we would have a catastrophic situation on the planet right now, everywhere, actually. So people don't realize that that was only the beginning of this. The The policymakers were very careful. And so the original protocol, you know, was just a start. And um, so we didn't, as scientists at that point, say, hallelujah, you know, it's all done now. You know, that, that would never, that wouldn't make sense because we knew it was just the beginning.
1: That was Susan Solomon, the atmospheric chemist, who linked the ozone hole to CFCs. And she's right. The Montreal Protocol was just the beginning. The final nail in the CFC's coffin came in 1989 when the European community decided to ban the production and the use of chlorofluorocarbons by 2000. Immediately after the announcement, the US decided to ban CFCs by the end of the century as well. At the time, the European community in the U.S. accounted for 70% of all CFC production. It was the end of an era. Both of Thomas Midgley Jr.'s harmful inventions were finally left in the past. Since then, the protocol has been amended many times to further regulate CFCs and has been hailed as the most successful international environmental agreement.
2: And today, every single UN member state has, has signed it. And I think that is really amazing that um, what I thought of at the time was a a minor discovery over Antarctica um, did turn into something that has affected everybody
1: on the planet. The Montreal Protocol worked, which is why you don't hear so much about the ozone layer these days. Nations across the world gathered and solved the crisis together. A report on the progress of the Montreal Protocol is published every four years. In the 2023 edition, the United Nations confirmed the phase-out of nearly 99% of banned CFCs and other ozone-depleting substances. According to the report, if current policies remain in place, the ozone layer is expected to recover to 1980 values by 2040. Over the Arctic, it will take until 2045. Above Antarctica, Recovery is only expected by around 2066. Besides helping heal the ozone layer, the treaty protected human health. The Montreal Protocol may have prevented up to 2 million cases of skin cancer each year by 2030, and avoided millions of cases of cataracts worldwide. The United States Environmental Protection Agency expects that the full implementation of the protocol will prevent 443 million cases of skin cancer, 2.3 million skin cancer deaths, and 63 million cases of cataracts for people born between 1890 and 2100 in the United States alone.
2: If we hadn't stopped putting chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere, um, there would be two things. One, um, it would be getting to the stage where ozone depletion is not constrained to the polar regions. It starts becoming significant in highly populated regions and therefore there's more ultraviolet light coming through, greater risk of skin cancers and uh, increased mortality in the population. So that's the, the sort of one scenario. The other is, of course, that we've had significantly more global warming because the chlorofluorocarbons are greenhouse gases in their own right, much more effective than carbon dioxide. So a small amount of extra chlorofluorocarbon has a bigger effect than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so, exactly how much warming I'm, I'm not certain, but there would have been significantly more warming um, without the Montreal Protocol. So we've we've work to to solve two potential crises. So it, it is making a big difference.
1: Shanklin is not sure how much the Montreal Protocol contributed to climate action. Well, we have the numbers. The agreement has already benefited efforts to mitigate climate change, helping avoid global warming by an estimated 0.5 degrees Celsius. The last amendment to the Protocol, signed in 2016, limited the use of hydrofluorocarbons which were introduced as non-ozone depleting alternatives, but were discovered to be contributing to climate change. This amendment will avoid another 0.3 to 0.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. Curbing climate change could be seen as just one beneficial side effect of the Montreal Protocol. Another could be that it struck a big blow to the Keyhole rule that steered the way companies did business for the better part of the century. If you need a reminder, Robert Kehoe was a chemist who worked in the leaded gasoline industry. He devised the rule by which many 20th century companies conducted their business. The Kehoe rule is that if there's no proven risk from a product, the product is safe. The Montreal Protocol finally exposed the flaw in Kehoe's logic and set the stage for a new approach, the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle puts the burden of proof back on companies. The company needs to prove that its product is safe instead of the other way around. The absence of evidence confirming risk doesn't mean there's no risk. The concept originated in Germany in the 70s. The term vorsorgeprinzip was used to describe the German response to forest degradation and sea pollution. German lawmakers banned certain substances that were suspected of causing environmental damage, even though the evidence at that time was inconclusive. The concept of the precautionary principle was first set out in a European Commission communication adopted in February 2000, which defined the concept and determined how it would be applied. It's now one of the fundamental principles of European Union governing policies on the environment, health, and food safety. The ozone crisis made us look at the environment from a different perspective. It made us work together. And it actually worked. It also curbed climate change. The UN has called the Montreal Protocol the single largest contribution the world has made towards keeping the global temperature rise well below two degrees Celsius. a target agreed at the Paris Climate Conference. So why didn't we solve the climate crisis that way? Of course, Climate change is a much bigger problem and the technology that is causing it is not as easy to replace as CFCs were, but we have known about it for as long as we've known about the ozone loss, even longer. How can we then use the lessons learned fixing the ozone layer to solve the climate crisis? That's for next time on Ozone. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered until climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank. interview segments with Mario Molina are extracts from the Oral History Interview with Mario J. Molina conducted in May 2013 by David J. Caruso and Jody A. Roberts of the Chemical Heritage Foundation's Center for Oral History.